Good afternoon. This is the Cannes Creative Show podcast. I'm Nathalie Banex and we discuss arts and culture with people who live and work in Kent. We have two guests today. We have Andrew McGuinness. So you're an author, publisher, editor at Red Sail Press and yeah. a writing coach. You write novels and short stories and you professionally coach new writers. You interview other authors at literary festivals, most recently at the Whitlit. And you are currently promoting your latest novel, which is why you're here today, Anatomized, published in May, so that was last month, so yeah. it only came out. You are also researching material for your next writing project, a series of novellas. Yes. As editor at Red Cell Press, you are already working with new writers and developing Red as an indie publisher. So we'll, we'll talk about that because that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And we also have Janice McGuinness. You are a freelance consultant at Culture Positive and publisher at Red Cell Press. And you are Andrew's wife. That's correct. You very recently left Canterbury City Council after 18 years where you were responsible for a range of services, including arts and culture. You are now in the early stages of developing Red Cell Press with Andrew. You are planning some freelance work as well. And you're also a trustee at the Marlowe Theatre and a member of the Kent Cultural Transformation Executive Board. That's correct. Before we talk about mm. the book and your career, uh, I'm always interested in having some background about where you come from. Okay and how you grew up and who, you know, what took you to what you're doing today. So, Janice, would you like to start? Okay. Um, so, I'm from Liverpool. I was born in Liverpool. Um, and I went to university in Manchester. And I worked for a little while as a bookseller. And then um, I went to the BBC after doing a library course. Um, I went to work at the BBC um, in their film library um, in Bristol and then in Leeds. So, I was working with the regional news programme, eventually, in Leeds. And... A colleague um, pointed out to me that a wonderful um, old cinema in Leeds called the Hyde Park Picture House, very old cinema, and the second oldest in the country was having to close down um, because it, it had no money, it couldn't make any money. And we decided to run a weekend festival to try and save it. And the weekend turned into a week and then it turned into two weeks. And then the council gave us a lot of money, actually, £20,000. And this is back in the 80s. In the 80s and found a sponsor to match it, um, to run a festival, at um, Leeds International Film Festival. So we did, and it was really successful. <laughs> I had no idea how to do that, Not, neither of us knew how to do it. But we did, and it was actually really successful. And so I left the BBC and went to run that on a oh. permanent basis. And I stayed there eight years. Um, and I, after eight years, I moved to Glasgow to run an organisation called Glasgow Film and Video Workshop. Uh, which supported young Scottish filmmakers. And um, the reason I really, really reason I moved to Glasgow is because I met Andrew and in Newcastle, um, and then he'd got a job in Glasgow. And Newcastle Leeds was a really easy commute, but Leeds Glasgow was not so easy. So, so I moved to Glasgow, stayed there a few years, then I moved down to Manchester, um, where I headed up um, BAFTA North, the northern branch of the British Academy of Film and Television Arts. I did that for a couple of years and then went to Northern Arts, which is the Arts Council in the north, where I headed up the um, film, media and literature um, department and ran the northern, um, the northern Film Production Fund. And, but it was in Newcastle, really, that I saw the massive impact that the public sector, that local authorities can have on their cities right. and their place and in the cultural um, economy and ecology there because both Newcastle City Council and Gateshead were doing things that I'd never seen before and of course that resulted in the transformation of the Quayside mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, totally transformed Newcastle and that was inspirational to be part of it, a tiny cog in that wheel um, but I wanted to go and work for a local authority and we talked about it and we said it'd be great to go back south wouldn't it because Andrew is, is from the south mm. and Andrew went to university in Canterbury mm. and he said it'd be good to go to Canterbury if there was a job in Canterbury and lo and behold the very next week, the Guardian arrived and in it was Head of Culture at Canterbury City Council. You're joking. No! Wow. <laughs> so it was so I applied yeah. for it, that nobody else was getting that job. No. So that was 18 years ago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so that's how I got here. <laughs> My story is a bit more straightforward. So, go on. <laughs> well, having said that, no. <laughs> it's getting complicated. There's always a story attached, isn't yes, there? Yes, of but course. No, I studied at Canterbury as a history student in the 80s, 
and in the late 80s. Um, and then I got a job lecturing in medieval history um, at Newcastle University or Northumbria. And, um, and then I went from there to Glasgow lecturing in medieval history and then I did a little bit at Manchester um, and then I sort of decided in that period of time that I was losing interest in history uh, well not so much that getting more interested in fiction so I started writing sort of stories for kids um, which I've never published um, because I then started writing more grown-up material uh, uh, for adults and um, sh short stories mainly and then th that's when this job came up and um, I came back down to Canterbury and sort of re-educated myself um, in prose fiction rather than history. So I returned, so I left an historian and came back a uh, fiction writer and I won um, an international short story prize which gave me the confidence then to to really go for it and um, and so I did, so I retrained and, um, and then became a lecturer um, at the same university where I was lectured in history. I came back and lectured in creative writing at Kent and then also at Christchurch University. So there was no sort of looking back, ironically, with history. I was, I was sort of always looking forwards and enjoying the writing of fiction as opposed to the history. I've never completely lost my interest in, in history but um, fiction's now my love rather than a hobby. It's my passion, it's what I love to do and explore, um, yeah. And why do you think you enjoy that switch from history to fiction? Well, it's an know? interesting question. I think it's just the use of the imagination. There are obviously rules and discipline of history, which I tend to recklessly abandon um, with fiction because fiction takes you somewhere else, a different part of the brain, um, and it felt more fulfilling uh, than, than, the, than the history. And I did publish in history and everything and, and sort of for a moment in time enjoyed it. And, um, and it's medieval history, of course, in Canterbury and, you know, around this part of Kent as well. There's a lot of uh, medieval history sort of we walk past every day. But um, no, it was, it was fiction and, um, and that's what I love, I love exploring. And do you uh, include some history in your novels? Um, I'm, I'm quite often asked that. Well, why, why do I not write historical Sorry fiction? Sorry about that. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I never have an adequate answer. I, mean, I yeah. should, really. And if I it's have, your interest, it yeah, would be expected. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, well, possibly there is, there's, there's one or two things that I've just jotted ideas down and sort of parked um, because there's so many other things that I'd rather sort of complete and, and other projects but um but yeah I, I think one day I will write that historical novel mm. um yeah. and I yeah it'd be a good it should be it should be a perfect partnership really um but at the moment it's just I'm thinking sort of more left field and um more yeah. abstractly yeah. and if we go back to your childhood mm. both of you was there anything in your education that would have given you an interest in this creative field? Um, actually, interestingly, the two things that I really enjoyed when I was a child were history um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and English, so that's mm. good, um, I suppose. Um, and I, I, did, I did drama as well, um, so that maybe got me mm. sort of interested in that. And that kind of started out because I had a lot of medical problems, I had a lot of problems with my sinuses, and I had lots of operations when I was little, and I spoke really nasally, and so my dad sent me to elocution lessons <laughs> to try and, yes. just because I'm yes. just, after yes. the operations, just to kind of correct that, and I didn't like elocution at all, but of course it was, the, the teacher was also a drama teacher, and so I straight, I loved drama, so you know, very quickly I was kind of, I was acting and not pronouncing things properly, but acting. And I did that until I was 18, um, kind of on the side. So I suppose that that kind of mm. got me interested in that and involved in it. And actually, my teacher was a real inspiration in lots of ways. She sort of she sort of was was my she, she, she gave me lots of things to listen to and read. So she kind of which I don't think would have happened actually at home. I'm an only child and actually mm. working class background, grew up on a council estate. My dad was really busy working. And I know both wonderful and and spent a lot of time with me on my education. But but weren't particularly interested in the creative arts and my drama teacher really was. So I kind of got all of that, a lot of that from her and that was great and a lot of confidence as well. Yeah, teachers can make a big difference. Yeah, yeah. I had fantastic English teachers, particularly at A-level and um, they 
inspired me to actually, they were disappointed I didn't go to university the first time around to study English rather than history. So they were right. Mm. Um, it, it was a hiatus of about <laughs> yeah. 10 years. But, but my two, you realised that yeah, years later. Why did I listen to them? You know, they said, why are you doing history? Because you know, you, I was writing stories and oh, enjoying drama and plays. And, um, but I, I veered off course. But I'm back on track. Hmm. Maybe track. it looked more serious or more. Yeah, maybe I don't. I don't know. Giving more yeah. opportunities for you're kind, yeah. of, you're kind of good at arguing as well, aren't you? You know, so I think that kind of holds mm. in the nicest possible way. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. <laughs> it took five seconds to sink in. <laughs> it did, didn't it? <laughs> but you know, there's a kind of weighing up of arguments with history. I think that's probably what you were quite good at yeah. and probably quite enjoyed. Um, but I, I, I may have gone to from through, experience. <laughs> yeah, journalism was something that was sort of yeah. vaguely in the background that I was sort of interested in. So it's telling stories, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fake news. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's gone from real news to fake yeah, news. Gone to fake Your news. book is not fake news, is it? Um, no, it's yeah, yeah, it's autobiographical. So there are elements of fact yeah. as well as exactly. fiction. Okay, well, mm. it will be my next uh, question. Okay. Um, I'd like to go back to your job in Canterbury because mm -hmm. you stayed 18 years is quite a long time to see things change in the yes. city. So what, what um, or how do you think arts and culture in Canterbury have changed over these 18 years? I think there's been a, I think, I think largely positively, I think there's mm. been a phenomenal change. I mean, one of the reasons that the post was being created, we had a new, there was a new chief executive had come to the council and had looked at what all the jobs, the jobs were and what we were doing and, and had created new posts to fill gaps. And, and um, the question that was asked at my interview was whether, the, the, the presentation was whether or not Canterbury should bid to be European capital of culture of in 2008. Yeah. Um, and, and, Of course it should, and it did, and and it didn't really stand a chance of winning. It was really about the process that you go through, thinking, where do you want to be in 10 years' time? How do you get that? How do you, where, where are your partners? How do you put that jigsaw puzzle together? And how do you get the investment to pay for it and deliver it? So it was a fantastic vehicle, and it gave everybody focus and ambition, and it was wonderful. And it's interesting, actually, because when I was... I, I, when I was I was leaving I was kind of gathering together things that I wanted to take with me and I found the presentation that I did in very very early days in the council and it was sort of saying well you know look at Canterbury look at East Kent there are no arts organizations of of regional regional standing probably but there were no I mean no organizations really of, or very few of national international standing um, and actually the It was quite a fractured sort of creative economy. Um, there were the, and the partnerships didn't really extend beyond that into other areas. So whereas in Newcastle and Tyneside, where I'd, where I'd come from, the there was a, there were partnerships were so well defined and they were very embedded and it was a you know both lateral and vertical and between local government and private sector and arts organisations that was very much in its infancy down here. And I think because of that, there hadn't been huge advantage taken of funding that was available, like lottery funding. Um, and I think that the moment was right because things were happening in Canterbury. They were happening in in Thanet. They were happening in in, in Shepway and Folkestone. There were there were there were lots of things beginning to, to move. So the moment was right to be able to galvanise all of that. And there were key people moving in different areas. So there was a bit of luck. There's always a bit of luck involved. The timing was right. And I think the capital of culture did change everything because what came from it were some really significant pieces of investment, uh, which changed the landscape in Canterbury. So the Marlow Theatre, for example, um, completely changed both the physical landscape of Canterbury and it opened up the city, but also the cultural landscape in terms of what's available on offer to go and see, but also the way you can get involved in it now, the creative things that are happening there. Um, The beanie um, was was you know and was, was 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 another another thing that that came out of that, but at the same time there were things like Turner Contemporary happening in 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 and creative in Thanet and creative foundation happening in Shepway and all kinds of other things happening. So I think that that the, the, there was a slow a slow growth, um, and big organisations rose out of that and then they formed partnerships and so it kind of I think the public sector drove it at first and then it's moved into another phase now where the creative and the cultural sector are moving it forward and you know there's a little bit of talk about should we or shouldn't we bid to be UK City of Culture um, for 2025 and 
I don't know whether that will happen or not, but if it does, that will be the, the sector itself the, taking the, it the forward. It has to have the public sector behind it. Yeah. But it's just things have shifted, I think. So I, I think it's almost unrecognisable in Canterbury now um, from 18 years ago for so many reasons. I mean, you know, Can- Canterbury City Council certainly has played a key role in that, um, but so have many, many organisations and individuals. Um, and it's quite an exciting place to be now within that whole tapestry of East Kent and Kent. Mm. I think there's a shift in terms of the impetus and support and drive that is that, that is being from local government and culture, because of course local government is under such pressure through austerity measures, and there's a real pulling back to essentials, mm. um, and that and I felt and that happened to me to some extent in, in in my role. Certainly, the things that we'd invested a lot of money in, like the Marlow Theatre, what remained priorities, but the way that we had previously brokered and enabled and invested simply aren't able to do that now so but I think that may come from other sources so universities are playing a, a big big role now as well so I, it's bringing a lot back in the economy as well yes absolutely I looked at the numbers it's yeah. quite impressive much more than what people think the Marlowe in particular well the Marlowe you know when it was the old, the old Marlowe I think it was about eight million a year um, in, ter- in economic impact locally and we'd anticipated that would be about 12 million 15 million mm-hmm going up year on year it's now hitting 40 million 40, yeah. you know it's it's fun, it's fun, it's phenomenal mm. and that's to do with all, every every aspect of its activity um both mm. its creative activity but also it, it has a policy of getting its supplies from Locally. kent where yeah. possible so there's a, the, a knock-on effect so there's a real yep. knock-on effect that's absolutely. right yeah mm. same with turner in, in margate and also absolutely mm. absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Mm. so you look back on these 18 years in a very positive way I do look back on the 18th. Must have been satisfying, it, rewarding. It was kind see of the challenges. For, for, for the most part, it was a, it was a it was a dream job really. Um, it was fantastic to be able to be to be given that opportunity to work with the people I worked with to have such huge support from people like Colin Carmichael, who was the chief executive. Always absolutely drove that cultural agenda. He was right behind it, and um, and actually all the councillors across parties. Um, came together and coalesced behind it and it was never used as a political football. Um, like I say, I think that, you know, times change, everything changed. There is still a huge amount of support for culture and I think that's one of the reasons that the management of the theatre is moving out of the council and into a trust because it's kind of ready to take its next step and it will be in some ways more secure as its own business and it will also be able to attract more money and it will get tax benefits and there are many reasons why it's the right thing to do at this point in time but in a sense that's also if you can see how things are moving out and rolling out and the roles that the council's playing are different roles to what they played 18 years ago but that's perhaps right mm. that, you know i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing you've mm. not left the marlow behind though I've not left the Marlow behind <laughs> i'll never leave the marlow no. behind <laughs> the marlow's my baby yeah <laughs> So tell us about Red Cell Press now. Did you, you, you were already a writer, so yeah. tell me, Andrew, what happens? Did you decide to self-publish? Um, yeah, it was sort of... In Blue Chrome, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I know, that's what started it. But I had a two-book deal um, when my first novel was published, so the second book was going to be a collection of short stories, So, and actually that was going to be my first publication with uh, Blue Chrome Publishing, um, who no longer exist. But um, in the end, I sort of pushed for the novel. I don't know why, because it's harder to get collections of short stories published. So it may be... But I'm, I'm still pleased with the first novel getting out there. So which, which one was it? That's a portrait of the arsonist as a young man, because I do like puns. And, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I like James Joyce. And um, so I had a bit of fun with that. But, um, and it's an interesting book, and it was much faster to write than anatomise for different reasons. Um, but I was once it was published, I was really excited about the collection of short stories, and then my the publisher went bust. Um, and once a publisher, once that had happened, it was very hard to find another publisher to take that that second book. Um, so I, in the end, I I put it away. I thought, okay, I'll I'll get on with other things, and. Um, in the end, I um, decided to publish it myself um, with with Red Sail, uh, 
at that time I was recovering from the illness as well, which is what's explored in, in Anatomized. So that process of re-editing those stories that I put away um, got me back in the groove of, of writing again and uh, in a short story format rather than a big novel. And it really helped me focus and improve, I think, my, you know, my health, um, I think, you know, my whole approach to, to life and things that improved is more positive. And probably because Red Sail was, I just thought, I'll just publish it under Red Sail um, as, a, as a, an indie, I suppose. Um, and, you know, it's okay, it's satisfying. Yeah, yeah. People like the collection. There aren't that many stories in there. It's not a difficult read. It's more generic than anything I've written before. Um, sort of borderline. I wouldn't call them horror stories. What are they? Sort they're, they're sort of inspired. mystery and imagination. Yeah, I think. <laughs> they're sort of inspired by. Well, there's a bit of Poe, uh, who I like, Edgar Allan Poe, um, in there. There's an influence in there, but um, and M. R. James goes some ghost stories and things. Um, but that was my first sort of. I enjoyed writing that sort of pseudo genre um, collection, which should have been published years before. But in the end, I had to do it myself. Sometimes you do have to. I think not take a stand but you need to think well I'll I'll I've got the energy I've got the know-how it's possible do it mm-hmm. um so we kind of did and it was exploratory really to see was it a difficult process um, yeah up, th- up and down it wasn't it's a small publication so it wasn't too difficult was it it wasn't too difficult doing um doing the, sh- the short story collection actually no. i mean there were some new skills learned like setting the book and everything mm. and the, getting the cover right and everything we did actually do some of the work on that ourselves and also worked with a designer who's really good and worked on the on mm. latimized too um and then it was kind of well that wasn't too bad that was that was relatively easy yeah. i mean the difficulty always is and i think it's uh, is distribution yeah and i think for all for all and creatives marketing. that often is mm. the is, is is the difficult moment is you can get all the way up to that mm. and then distribution mm. is difficult um and then we thought, well, actually, you'd, you'd worked with the Society of Authors, hadn't you, to get your rights back on Portrait of the Arsonist yeah. Yeah. Um, from the publisher that had gone back. Mm. You'd got them back. And so we, we just put that back out again with yeah. no fanfare, just so it no. was available. Um, and, and, and we did that. And then we kind of forgot about it. We didn't think about Red Sail being anything other than a vehicle that you could actually um, publish that work under yeah. rather than doing it under, you know, mm. sort of... Lulu or some mm-hmm. kind of um, some, some other sort of you know sort of straight using create space or something so so it kind of it that was its genesis and it's just worth thinking a little bit differently about its potential for the future now I, I mean suppose. obviously it's harder work um, but you get more satisfaction from yeah. it and more because you've got more control over the creative and technical aspects and and that's what happened with anatomized really because you know and andrew's agent had sent if i talk about that other than yeah, you it's because you never blow your own trumpet no <laughs> i'm always blowing everybody else's <laughs> trumpets um, but... had, had sent it to um a number of big publishers um and i think to be fair he was only interested in big publishers because he wouldn't get very much return from mm. a from from an indie and we thought it was probably an independent book um but there were two actually big publishers who came back and asked for the whole manuscript and really liked it and came back and said this is really elegant this is really interesting writing we really like it um perhaps if it could be made a bit more generic Mm. and actually that was a really tough question for you wasn't it because of course you can do that but that wasn't the book that you wanted to write which is why we need to talk about (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) so tell us how it started and why you wrote this book what happened uh, the motivation for writing Anatomized was really uh, through personal experience of ill health. So I came down with a, uh, a mysterious illness that doctors were unsure about. Um, and I was misdiagnosed um, a number of horrible things, uh, multiple sclerosis and uh, maybe even a stroke. Maybe it's a second stroke. So my health was really going downhill very fast but with no answers. So I was having no treatment because they weren't quite sure. They kept going from one diagnosis to another and no no one was in complete agreement. So um, that aspect of it is included in in anatomized because I was sort of dismayed and frustrated and occasionally very angry about um, Hmm. the the system really and how how the, because I realized years later that I'm not alone there are thousands of people diagnosed with this every year in the UK 
hundreds of thousands in America every year. Um, across the whole of Europe, it's endemic uh, Lyme disease uh, through uh, tick bites. And not all of them carry the disease. I think about 10% of the ticks could have harmful bacteria. Um, so once they get into your system and they're not treated soon enough, then it can wreak havoc. Um, and, you know, some people really go downhill very fast and it messes up your immune system. So there was a, it's a complicated story and I thought I needed to raise awareness um, through what I do, which is writing, but I wanted to not write a memoir because I wanted to use my imagination. And, and the book goes off in very unusual, unexpected directions that I was really pleased about as a writer. I thought this is halfway through the first draft. I thought, OK, thank God, it's not just about Lyme disease. It's about all of these big human aspects of ourselves, identity, some big life and death questions being asked, um, some philosophy, of course, there's science, um, there's even a tiny bit of history. Obviously, there's a lot of autobiography in the story. But so I think it's, a, you can see, it's sitting there on the table, it's a big book um, in every sense, and uh, it covers some really big themes. And I think the big publishers enjoy the book is, uh, I, I, I never thought a publisher would say my, my writing was elegant, but that was lovely. Um, so I don't know what happened with Lyme disease, but it turned me into an elegant writer. Um, maybe there's a page in there. Well, I still would not recommend it. <laughs> no. And, um, yeah, so uh, they, I couldn't turn it into anything other than what it was. Um, and I think that was the issue with the big publishers and therefore with my agent at the time was that it was hard to pigeonhole um, and maybe the big publishers were thinking it's a maybe too niche a market but I had to keep explaining and you know it, it's a very it's a big book and it covers really big themes and I was surprised that the agent wouldn't go back to some other indie publishers with that concept um, but I think once the you know the big publishers were withdrawing and saying look if you can turn it into a generic detective story or a sci-fi story they didn't quite go detective or sci-fi no no <laughs> no, I, no i did in an email yeah you night. did yeah. i sent up my own book and said oh i can do this i can in one of the you central... didn't mean it <laughs> no i didn't mean <laughs> it he's being no. ironic but that's interesting because it's an issue that happens to lots of creative it's the limit between what you want to do your mm. own message exactly. your work mm. coming mm. from you purely from what you feel yes and then adapt it to a demand that's yes. right that's right uh, not just writer you know i think it's mm. i think it's all the way through isn't it and i think actually it just becomes it's it's a, i think i've always i've always seen that but i think it's probably getting worse and worse maybe that's because the margins get lower maybe because the taste becoming more homogenous i don't know but i think also you get caught in this echo chamber anyway don't you where you know the yeah you, the, the, this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of what demand will be and so i think unless i think it's quite difficult to get something out there unless there's a there's a hook that they that the publishers can have to to sell it mm. and it might be that it's a it's quite an unusual book, but you're a celebrity. Mm. That's fine. Mm. If you're not, then it's then how then how do they handle yeah. that? And, and it, they were such positive um, no's that it was in some ways encouraging. Yeah, I was but, confused but they, because it, it but was they accessible. Everyone kept using this term. It's yeah. very accessible, and mm. the style is mm. accessible. Because if a big publisher says something that they think would make it to a bigger audience, yeah. obviously mm. it's tempting in a yeah. way. Yeah. But you don't want to compromise your work. No. So you and decided not to. I decided not to. Um, and also, I, I suspect that that whole process of finding that big publisher through the my agent was a year. And I just thought, it's back to the drawing board. Um, what mm. do I do mm. now? And Red Sail was always there mm. as a safety blanket, whatever, a security it was, blanket. It was that net. It was there. It was there. Um, and I thought, you know, what Janice, I, I, I think I'm going to just mm. do it, mm. even though I didn't really want to because I think it, it deserves a bigger audience. Mm. And um, so I invested time, didn't really, with, you know, thinking about the whole concept of the cover. 
everything else. It, mm. it, it, it was a big project, a very big project. And timing was important as well. So it had taken mm. a year, it had been with the agent for about mm. a year. And, and and I think, you know, different agents have different approaches. Some sort of go out to a lot of publishers at once. This particular agent was a one-at-a-time person. So it had taken mm. quite a long time. And, and there was one publisher who sat on it for a long time. And, it you know, yeah. really in the balance where they were going to take it on. It was a really big publisher. They, they didn't. That was a shame. But... Um, the the agent didn't really want to go I said, to the sort of independent, the mm. smaller independent mm. publishers. And I think that for him was mm. largely financial mm. because you don't really get big advances or mm. huge sales. And so his cop would be much smaller. And that's, and but there was a timing issue because, you know, Lyme disease is a very political issue. It's changing all the time. Um, and in, a, in some ways, I mean, on, on one sense, this is a work of literary fiction. And in another sense, it is actually part of that campaign. So it needed to be out there. And you, and, and you felt, I think, I'm putting words into your mouth, but this is what you said, that you wanted to yeah. have control over that yes, as well, yeah. control over what it was saying. Yeah, my mm. agent wasn't really listening to the, I think what I was trying to do with the book. So there was a slight mismatch um, regarding this, if mm. you like, product. And um, yeah, so, so we sort of, so, Red Sale did it. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us through, tell, tell us about that and who the characters are and how you built the story so you could keep control of the way the message would be uh, would be passed on. Yeah, well, originally yeah. in my mind, I knew it's a dark subject to discuss and write about, and um, I had I didn't have a character. It wasn't going to be me because I, I wanted I needed psychological distance from the harrowing experiences of Lyme disease. So I had a, a character from a different story who had a different name, um, but he was a stand-up comedian. And I thought there's an element, a strong element of tragedy in Anatomized, and I needed a counterbalance, and, and that had to be through the central characters somehow. Um, so Jack Mann and um, his wife Alice, is um, they're from London, and they moved down to Whitstable forward slash Tankerton, um, and they build um, this amazing dream house, which is a lot of people's dream. Um, but he's already starting to, <clears throat> he's already uh, starting, his health is declining. Um, but there's an element of that, that lightness that you get with a, a sort of a stand-up comedian, or, or humour at least, dark humour, uh, just to, to balance mm. the really dark, darker aspects of this. So what happens in the story is that Jack and Alice find out time after time that it's not this thing it's not that thing it could be that no it's not that and they have to find a way of surviving they have to fight the system and um and find a way of living and basically finding their dream again so it's a bit of a roller coaster ride it's, it's quite an emotional sort of up and down sort of story um, which hopefully well, people are saying the reviews are good, um, that it's yeah. gripping, compelling. Yeah. Um, they do talk about this roller coaster ride, um, which is what it is. It's a bit like the heart one, so you know the the bleep, the the, the shape. Yes, yes, yes. Um, that's the kind of thing that I wanted as a narrative. Yeah, that you was don't my... want it flat. No, no. <laughs> you don't want a flatliner. <laughs> but of course, Jack, Jack is desperately close to being a flatliner, and um, at various times, I won't go into too much detail. Spoiler if you like, the enjoyable yeah. aspects yeah. of the, the unexpected yeah. aspect of the book. And, um, but I, I liked that notion of, of it not being linear. Mm. Um, it's fluctuating, um, emotionally and psychologically, mm. in that sense, fluctuating and not, and not just a straight story. So how long was it between when you first became ill and the time they diagnosed Lyme disease? How many years? Three it was years. Oh, several, three it years. Was about so three you did not know you had Lyme disease? Two years, probably. Two years. It? it was two years, and then there was a year of I think trying to get treatment. Yeah, I think that you knew, we'd suspected it, you found it, um, actually about a year in, wasn't it? You Actually mm. less than a year, because you'd got ill in the summer, and it was that December, wasn't it, that you, that well, because we were just drawing so many blanks, you know, one stroke, two strokes, brain tumour, multiple cirrhosis, no, none of those things. Um, well, the things, there are three rules that officially, that, um, that Lyme disease is rare to contract, uh, so it's a rare disease, um, that it's easy to diagnose um, and not difficult to treat. Um, and in fact... I, none what, of those things are true. Yeah. 
it's upside down. It's mm. completely or the wrong way round. It, it's it's not true. Um, so my recollection is that about eight months in, you went to ask for a Lyme disease test because you'd found you'd been putting your sim- your symptoms. You'd been researching your symptoms, mm. and 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 the actual classic trajectory from the bullseye rash all the way through everything that had happened to yeah, you over eighteen was... months because there'd actually been illnesses before the the, the, yeah. the what appeared to be a stroke there'd been illnesses before then as well and the classic trajectory all the way through so you had a Lyme disease test which came back negative which we very quickly found out is a it's very common because you, they the test tests your immune response not the disease itself they can't test for the disease itself um, and so it's about 50% accurate a lot of people so it's an antibody test yeah it's an antibody test but also if you've had something that suppresses your immune system then your antibodies can't react and so your likelihood of testing negative when you're positive is very high um, and andrew had been given a slew of steroids when they thought he had multiple yeah, sclerosis for ms i was treated for ms um, even though it wasn't ms so that had suppressed his immune system actually yeah. allowed the disease to become more rampant but yeah. meant that when he was tested it was going to be negative hmm. so you had several tests on the nhs didn't you and they were a mixture of negative equivocal and positive yeah. but there weren't enough positives because mm. the i think the attitudes are slowly changing and education and knowledge levels is slowly changing but back then because we're talking about eight years ago um there was it was a brick wall and the part some, sometimes through lack of understanding occasionally through sheer bloody mindedness and intransigence i talk about a particular microbiologist but i won't, won't obviously won't name names so and that and that and that made it very difficult. So the fight to get to get treatment to get diagnosed for both of us, I think. I mean, much worse for you because you had the disease. Was actually almost as bad as as fighting the disease itself, wasn't it? Because yeah. you didn't have the, you weren't it given was, the equipment, you weren't given the tools no, to fight the disease. No, there was an element of denial, and uh, which there still is today, unfortunately. Hearing other stories, uh, it depresses me to hear about very similar stories up and down the UK and across Europe um, and in America are the same things going on again, misdiagnosis, um, struggling to convince people. I don't know how, it, you can't ask questions. If you ask those questions, you, 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 get a, you do get that denial or the obstructionism, you get the, the brick wall um, that you're not meant to ask those sort of questions. You're meant to be told what the diagnosis mm. is. But I didn't actually have one in the end. I was I was signed off and, and no further, mm treatment or 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 testing so um, you got tests and um, we, we actually had blood tests sent to america and to germany we did that privately yeah and they both came back positive yeah amazing yeah um so you must be really disappointed with our local yeah. system yeah i mean it's on the one hand yes and on the other hand sort of no because it is it's not rare but it's the the tools for finding it in the human body aren't really there yet so mm. you've got a 50 percent accuracy rate of of yeah. blood tests so is that something you'd like to see change absolutely yeah, absolutely, absolutely. and your book would participate yeah. in that absolutely yeah. more yeah. money more investment yeah, yeah. into research and better diagnostics because to be fair i said that was some bloody mindedness and intransigence there was but it actually for the most part most of the doctors and the consultants that were that were, were looking after you wanted desperately to help but actually the answers they were getting from the only thing that they thought was relevant which was the blood test which is not true clinical diagnosis also should play a part and i think hopefully with new nice guidelines will but it may not go that far but they weren't using that they were using the blood test they couldn't help so mm. i think it was mm. it was really it was it was it was really frustrating but eventually a GP did actually clinically diagnose and treat, treat and then you started to get better. And then I started to get better, well enough to write anatomized. I, so I it's still only wasn't... then that you could start writing? Yes. Um, okay. I, it was the fatigue, it was mm. it, it, not feeling tired, it was extreme sort of just run a marathon when you climb out of bed in the morning and, that, and it would just get worse from that point on. Um, so I just didn't have the energy uh, and also I didn't have the, I think the cognitive focus the 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 ability either to mm. to put string things together i think i said at the launch actually that you know the reading and writing was difficult enough one sentence was extremely difficult to, to remember the information at the beginning when i got to the end mm. so if i couldn't do hold that information when i was reading it yeah. how how the hell was i going to write it but so, so things did improve i did um obviously make a reasonable enough recovery to start making notes 
Um, but it took me four years to, to really get this to the point where I was happy with it. Um, so who did uh, you write it for? Who? Um, I, I wrote it for a little person inside me. <laughs> me. For, I did write it for me. There was an element of catharsis. Um, but I, I, I also consciously wrote it for um, a medical profession. I don't know if they'll ever get around to reading it. I really hope they do, particularly neurologists and microbiologists, um, to see the, not the damage that they cause, but the damage that can be caused by uh, the bacteria um, when we haven't got the tools to, to, to treat it um, and to yeah. diagnose it. But also for the patients um, who are still piling up outside the, their A&Es, um, being diagnosed with possibly the wrong thing, mm, mm. which is exactly what happened to me. Mm. Um, and they're still happening. So I think the book is still relevant, even though it, it was written effectively over the, you know, the last four years. Things, the strides should be, they're small steps forwards, but they're not really moving fast enough. And, and this is one of the reasons I was raising universal sort of awareness of, mm. of the problem mm. but also particularly in the UK and um, I know it's the same in parts of Europe um, in in the Netherlands and in France and, and it's the same in America to some extent isn't yeah it? very much so very mm. much so so we can't tell what is from your imagination and what really happened to you which is a good way <laughs> it's a good yes. idea to write yes. a novel in that respect yes. We, as readers, we won't be able to tell. No. But have you added a lot? Uh, have you played with your imagination a fair bit? Um, I don't know how much you've read of it because towards the end, um, well, not the end. I'm not at the end yet. No. Okay, well, I won't say too much about that because no, no, I wouldn't want to ruin... No, 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 no. For no, me no. as a writer, that was where imagination really right. came in okay. to play the, the last right. few chapters yeah, of the book, excellent. where things really start mm. to get interesting. Mm. Um, it's interesting up to that point, mm. but it goes in very unusual right. directions. And I guess Jack and Alice aren't me and Andrew, um, you know, and, and, and they're not. Um, mm. the, the, the journey is Andrew's journey, but Jack and Alice's story and their family yeah. um, um, it's not, it's, it's no, not our no. story. And right. so no. that's, that's the difference, okay. isn't it? No, and I would, so. say, I would say that it's probably 50-50 in terms of the, okay. the narrative events, mm. you know, that a lot of those might be true in the early mm. half of the book. I like the fact that we don't know. I yeah, don't actually yeah, want yeah. to know. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. I had to give it yeah. to Jack. I had yeah, to give this to Jack. Okay. And, um, and then I felt better, but I, yeah. I felt sorry for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, yeah. I said in the paper, in the interview, that I always apologise to him in my head almost mm. every day. Because I don't want to give it to anybody, you mm. know, this thing, Lyme disease. And I had to give it to someone for the story mm. to work mm. and to help me. Mm. So... Anyway, sorry, Jack. Would you like to read uh, something from it? Oh, um, I could do, but not the lumbar puncture story. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, I was back into Edgar Allan Poe sort of territory yeah, there yeah. with the lumbar puncture story. I don't know, what, what could I read? Have a look. And in the meantime, Janice, you could try and tell us why we should read this book. Okay. Um, I clearly come from a slightly biased position but I think it is a tremendous book I've read it three times I've read it in all its iterations so I read it in first draft and and, and kind of as it was going through and, and, and over that sort of 12 months that it, it got tighter and tighter um, it's a very emotional book I mean Jack happens to have Lyme disease it could be anything in some ways I mean in obviously it has to be Lyme disease because it's very that it's unique what's happening right now in the world with Lyme disease is very particular but it's about Jack and anybody at Jack man any man and 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 Alice man facing an almost insurmountable object and beating it and then facing another one and then another one and then it's 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 their challenge and their response to their challenge um, and the effect it has on their lives and their relationships and other people around them is really profoundly moving and it's also very funny you know I mean the, if there are moments there are laugh out loud moments in it and you and three pages on there are actually moments that will bring you to tears and I'm not exaggerating that it's a very emotional book um, and it's and it's very quick to read so I mean I'd class this as literature um, you know personally but it's not inaccessible at all so you can move through it really quickly the language is very easy to assimilate and it's got a real somebody 
And one of the reviews talked about the musicality of the language and the rhythm of it. Um, and and I think that's, I, I hadn't thought of that before, but I think that's absolutely true. It, I think it does have that. Um, I, I just think it's tremendous. You know, I already started, but I will keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't found. I still haven't found Can you find something, Andrew? Well, I just think is that the bit I would like to read goes, just goes on for so many pages that we just, you know. Maybe just the beginning. Oh, yeah. just the beginning. Ooh, ooh. No, I've never Which read part, it from the yeah. beginning. What happens in the beginning? Oh, 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 did, you, <laughs> oh did you want to read the bit that's about Jack? The um... no, it's too long. Though mm. I know. Oh no, I could read. Yeah, yeah, I could read right at the very beginning, couldn't I? Just the opening, yes. little bit. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so um, okay, so I'll start the very beginning. So um, there's a definition of anatomize, uh, a verb to cut apart, to show or examine the position, structure, and relation of parts, to study something in detail in order to discover more about it. Part one. There is no health, physicians say, that we at best enjoy but a neutrality. And can there be worse sickness than to know that we are never well, nor can be so? John Donne, An Anatomy of the World. Chapter 1, A Night at the Opera. On the road to Glyndebourne, the sky seemed fragile and spent, dull blue fading to grey and speckled like a fledgling gull. The atmosphere was hot and humid, so Alice switched on the air conditioning. Even then, Jack perspired in his tuxedo and winged collar, hands planted in front of the dashboard blowers, he wasn't an aficionado of opera or a fan of dinner jackets. All he wanted to do was turn the car round. But as Jerry's special guests, there was no going back. The mans were behind schedule, or as Alice preferred to call it, fashionably late. Jack had grown accustomed to this, yet it sometimes felt like itching powder sprinkled down his shirt. Alice dressing and redressing, asking for an opinion at various intervals before rejecting his advice and going back to her original dress. Jack, on the other hand, could be showered, shaved, suited and booted in less than half an hour. Assistance required only with tricky cufflinks. Tonight, the order of things had changed. No quibbles over shawl or shrug, which necklace matched what earrings, or what heels were best suited to the plush lawns of Glyndebourne. Alice was ahead of herself, and Jack was the one pleading for more time. He'd sat on the edge of the bathtub, repeatedly flexing the fingers of his left hand and the toes of his left foot, trying to shake off pins and needles. In the heat of imminent departure, Alice had been the one locking the windows of the rented 1970s bungalow they jokingly called the bunker. She'd been the one filling Pandora's dog bowl with fresh water. She'd been the one standing by the front door, janking the keys and glaring at the hallway clock. That's just the so first that's, page. <laughs> that's yeah. just the first page. And yeah, and it is a big, uh, big book. What do you enjoy most in the writing process? Uh, for, um, I think as that's a very good question. Um, that whole process. I mean, uh, obviously, the satisfaction of completion and 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 holding something physical, a mm. physical object. Um, but for me. I, I think it's finishing perhaps the first or the second draft when I've, I really know what I've got. Mm. I think Raymond Carver, the American writer, said about getting black on white, about getting your first draft down, and then you've got material, because until that point, obviously, it's just ideas um, and notes. But to actually have a story that, that moves all the way through the things that you are hoping for it to move through and you do and then you think my god now it's also clear to me what I have to do um, because you're really just putting things down in order um, and then you have to rearrange um, you have to build layers you have to work on um, themes um, I ask myself is there any poetry in this prose um, are there too many metaphors so there's so many questions some of those were answered in the first draft. So for me, it's probably that first and then perhaps that transition to the second draft. I think for me, personally, it feels more satisfying because I think I've really enjoyed getting to that point. And then, and then it's over to you, isn't it? 
I call you the butcher of Tankerton, don't I? Yeah, I'm his, fir- I'm his first reader, sort of a, you know, that kind of... Ideal reader. As opposed to be called ideal readers. I'm not sure I am his ideal reader because I've got a real penchant for a red pen. So, <laughs> so Andrew says, what do you think of this? And I say, it's fantastic, but have you... You've, you've made a mark on this, what are you telling me to do? So it's quite interesting. It's quite an interesting process, that, isn't it? Well, you must be very proud. I'm extraordinarily proud. I'm hugely proud. I could never do that. I could never write creatively in that way. Um, you know, it's I'm but an see, enabler, not can. a creator. And but I think you could, you see. No, I, no, I think a no. lot most people could. Well, I don't know. You could. I think that you can. I think you can learn the skill um, and the craft. I, I think you can do that. But I think that you, you, your mind creatively works in interesting ways. Kind of, sort of unique. I think, and I think that is the difference with. Real, you know, with creatives, they they have their own clear vision, don't they? And whether you're writing a a, a sort of a tale of of imagine a Kafkaesque tale of imagination or something that is heavily drawn from the personal, it becomes quite strange because you kind of your mind takes you in those places. Mm-hmm. I like strange. And <laughs> and I think that's your unique yeah. vision. And I think that I could learn the craft, but I don't think I'd have that vision. I don't uh, think I would. Well, I just don't think I would. But I'm incredibly proud. Really proud. I was proud when I saw the when you finished it. I was proud when I saw the book. I was really proud at the launch, actually, because um, the launch went so went so well, and there were so many people there, and the reviews are coming in, and they're really good. So I'm I'm proud because of I think it's a great book, and I think Andrew's done a great job. But actually, I was there every step of the way when mm. he was ill, mm. and to think the transformation from somebody who couldn't string a sentence together really, and who had little hope, just didn't think anything was ever going to get any better. I wasn't going to um, dinner party no, invitations it, or anything because wasn't going I, out. I, I um, didn't know how to um, explain it to people over dinner, and neither did I think I should or would want to, but. I couldn't keep hold of the conversations that were going on. But to see the transformation from that person who has got back to where Andrew was, Mm. but actually in some strange way enriched, not that I would wish this experience on anyone, it's awful Mm. Andrew went through it, but it's it has in, in in it's damaged, but it's also enriched in other ways. And to have kind of come out at the end with this book, I just think that's the most remarkable achievement. I can imagine. <laughs> can, can I just mention, because yes. the listeners won't um, be aware of the cover. Yes. But um, there is some sort of element of fate involved in, in, in this image of the, the person on the top of a cliff um, reaching, looks like, towards a seagull. I'd never been to Tuscany before, and we needed a holiday, so we went to Tuscany, and we were... Is it San Gimignano? Is that yeah. how you say yeah, San Gimignano? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we were walking through this old medieval um, town, uh, and there was a gallery. And I was walk- we were walking past the gallery, and I saw some of the art, and that was one of the, the pieces of art. So immediately I, yeah. I'd finished the second draft, so I knew really the, 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 the essence of the, of the book. Um, and the themes and everything, and it all seemed to be encapsulated in this. Uh, we stopped in our tracks. Yeah, we? yeah, yeah. And I said, "Look, look at this. <laughs> it's look, it is, it's it. It's it. What we're going to do? What we're going to do? So we have to buy it. We have to." Buy it. <laughs> I said, "I know, but I want to use it. I want to use it." So he's a lovely artist, um, and uh, he he allowed us to use of it, didn't he? And, yeah, uh, for free. Antonio Antonio Bresci. Uh, yeah. in Tuscany in this medieval town and um, and we've got the original it's it's not a big it's not a big know, piece it's not a big it's piece uh, yeah and I just thought no that, that, that that's keep it simple that that's it mm. uh, and also it was like serendipity or something it was meant to be mm. um, and he understood what we were saying as well yeah. Well, this experience has obviously changed probably enormously your perception of, of life yes, yes. Um, sensi- sensitivity to yes. things. I mean, I when say, you go through an experience like that, oh, I yeah. mean, it's life changing. Um, I mean, there are, somebody mentioned this at the launch. Um, Emily mentioned, she said, so it all sounds so negative without having read the book. And I said, well, you know, there, was a, there, were, there were laughs, there's laughter as well as tears, as there is in life. And um, but she says, well, something positive must have come out of it other than you've got a novel. And I said, yes, um, my view of the world has changed and I'm more philosophical about things. So when something small that used to appear massive mm. goes wrong, 
um, you know, I still get cheesed off, or whatever. But uh, yeah, but I don't, it, I don't want it to last long. I want it to be short. You know, if something's upsetting, you know, you want that to be as short as possible because something worse could have happened and does happen to people. So I'm sort of more philosophical. Uh, Stoical, I suppose, not, not stoical. No, no. It's more than stoical. You were stoical in the illness, but yeah. and, a, and a real fighter. Yeah. But it's but that's your philosophical. I think is right, and slightly more. I mean, you're not really laid back, but you are more laid no, back. No, no, no. <laughs> no. You are more laid back. No, seriously, I'm a very uptight. I'm an uptight sort of writer. So I'm lying now. Aren't I? I'm, I'm saying, oh, I'm such a you know philosophical though. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm yeah. a laid back philosopher, now, but I'm not. <laughs> My view, my world view has changed, and uh, understandably, I suppose. And so, but I, I've got a better perspective on mm. on things. So I enjoy sometimes really simple things like dogs running around the garden. Mm. Um, whereas before that, I, I may have been oblivious yeah. to what was going on, mm. even in the garden. Mm. But now I notice more. Mm. I think I notice more, which is good for a writer anyway. Mm -hmm. But I, so I think I've improved in that respect. I think I'm. I, I'm much more observant and how are you now health wise yes i'm probably you mean right now this second yeah. well no i'm probably running on adrenaline this, now what, what six years of uh, I, I, fighting I, the yeah. disease i think um if you if you don't get diagnosed early with lyme disease you you come through it sort of not damaged goods but you're you're sort of scarred scarred in a way so it has you know there's a, an effect that no amount of treatments really going to cure yeah. um, so damage has been caused to my central nervous uh, peripheral systems so I take very strong painkillers that they right. they prescribe to epileptics normally to right. slow down the seizures it just slows down the messages but Andrew doesn't have seizures no but no I don't they, have but it's, seizures it's, it's, but it's to it's to it's to control the pain in your yes. hands and feet yeah my it? hands and feet um, but that's because damage had been caused mm. Uh, so I'm, you know, on a very good day, I'm probably eighty percent. But I, I've talking about philosophy. I'm happy with eighty percent because I, I was down to two mm. one percent. Uh, you know, you talked about that flatliner. Well, mm. there was, you know, there was a there was a, a chance, um, which has changed my world view. But so I'm, you know, so I'll take seventy five eighty percent any day of the week. On a bad day, like for instance, I launched the book. Um, and ordinarily, I would probably bounce back in 36 hours from something big like that. Uh, but it took me a week. Yeah. Mm. It took me about a week. Mm. Mm. Uh, I was, you know, flattened because I invested a lot in emotionally and psychologically, I think, into not just the writing of the book, but the, mm. I got worked up, you know, mm. <laughs> about the about the event. And um, mm. it was great seeing all those people there and everything. And so I had to hold it together. And then, of course, you fall to pieces when you try and hold things together mm. for intensely mm. for a period of time. So I'm sort of on my way up again. <laughs> so this has come at a good time. This, uh, good. yeah, huh. yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm excited about the future and future projects, which has nothing to do, I don't think, with anatomized writing-wise. You know, the fiction. So, do you want to tell us about no? You'll have to come. I'm again a little bit. Then. I'll have to come yeah, again. Great. I'm a bit. Good, we'll I'm a bit that. superstitious about. Good. Fine. That's know, absolutely. I, I never do it if I say right. anything. I, it's okay. like I've done it, and um, it's entirely different. Yeah. Entirely. But you are a writing coach, so you yes. are. You are you doing this at the moment? Of I'm, I'm feeling my way back into that because right. that had to. Sort it's quite of, demanding. So. Yeah, it is. But I, I love um, helping new writers. Um, in fact, many years ago, not many years ago, a few years ago, I organized the first, created the first um, fiction mentoring scheme for new writers um, in Kent. Um, and I think now two of the four, the first people that we got, two of the four have got, um, had their books published, but one of them with, uh, I forget who it is now, but a big publisher. HarperCollins. HarperCollins. Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm really, I'm pleased that that's happening for them. But unfortunately, then the budget was gone and, and it had to stop. But so I sort of do it privately now. I do, I do sort of, I, I like the one-to-one -one work because you can talk openly and honestly with, with somebody and, you know, it's focused. And I'm very much into the craft of, of writing and obviously people's own imagination, feeding their own imaginations. But I like different stories, mm. and I, I like a different take on on, on things, and uh, so I, I and I know I can help 
you know, because I lectured in it and I do my own stuff. So I know that I can steer and help, um, but it's always very honest. So sometimes that, <laughs> that could be tricky, but you know because yeah, <laughs> i'm the worst person for taking criticisms so. yeah i can vouch for that yeah all right yeah, so, yeah. so i don't like meeting out. Oh, it's very good i like yeah. it very yeah, much yes, thank you very much natalie you are yeah, it's fantastic yeah, it's yeah. true it's very because you're on a journey aren't yeah. you where can people find the book um it's it, you can find it um you can order it from bookshops as with any indie publisher that you know it, it isn't widely stocked it is in harbour books i'm in whitstable it's in christchurch um university bookshop. bookshop and actually we we should start getting it out to some other bookshops locally um quite soon but you can order it from any online source as well so it's available from amazon um it's available ibooks um, Waterstones online, um, foils, any 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 online. So it's the quickest source, of course, is always Amazon because mm. you get it, you know, the next day. Mm. But some people don't like going down that route, so no. there are plenty of other routes that you can okay. go. So how can people get in touch with you? Through your website. Through my website, um, www.afmcginnis.com. Um, I'm also available on Red Cell Press at Gmail, and that reaches both of us, Red Cell Press at Gmail.com. Um, and your Twitter as well, aren't you? I'm on Twitter at AF McGuinness. That's capital Z, A F, and in capital M, small C, capital G. Uh, but you know, it's not, yeah, it's as on the book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. As on the book. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. anatomized. Anatomized. Well, Janice and Andrew, thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting us.